from the Gospel of John, the sixth chapter. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then, and seeing what a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had already eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. And they were glad to take him into the boat. And immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. This is the word of God. One of the great things about C.S. Lewis, Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia is that it can be enjoyed on many levels. How many of you have heard of the Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis? And how many of you have seen or read the first book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? Okay, fairly familiar, and hopefully you've read all seven of those books. But one of the great things about that story is it's fascinating at many different levels. 
A child, for example, can read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe and find himself fascinated by the, the magic closet and the, by the wintry land and uh, by Tumnus the fawn and by Edmund and the White Witch and all of these things. A, a, a child loves Lucy's loving and trusting nature and finds that land where it is always winter and never Christmas just fascinating and, and beautiful. And a child falls in love with Aslan just like Lucy and the rest of the people did. It's a beautiful story just to be enjoyed on that level. But if we come to that story as an adult, as most of us have already, we appreciate this literature on a much deeper level. We can see symbols in it. We can see images in it. We see Edmund's attraction to Turkish delight as something we feel very familiar to ourselves. The attraction to something which we love to eat and makes us kind of feel sick when we are done. You know, attraction and addiction to something that begins to control us and make us not feel good. Feels good going down, but doesn't seem good. We see him wanting to be king all by himself instead of all four of them being king and being drawn to the white witch's side. And we see our own will to power and the problem of evil. And we see also Aslan, this story, and we see him as a typical figure of Jesus. Aslan, who gives his life as a sacrificial offering at the end of the story, looks to us as adult readers very much like the offering of Jesus on behalf of a, of a traitorous humanity. So yes, we can enjoy the story simply as a beautiful children's adventure, but as you look at it more carefully, you can see deeper themes that make it even more of an enriching experience to look at this story. At both levels, the story of Narnia is fascinating, but only with the eyes of maturity and a longer look does it ultimately become a compelling and life-transforming, potentially, narrative. Now, what I've just described is true for all great literature, great films, and etc., whether a child story or like the Chronicles of Narnia or even the great novel currently on the big screen, Anna Karenina, which I've not seen, but which is one of my all-time favorite books written by Leo Tolstoy. Beautiful as you examine and look at it carefully and see what's there. Well, what's true about great literature is also true about the stories which Richard just read for us so well. On the one hand, the feeding of the 5,000 and the story of Jesus walking on the water are two of the most well-known and delightful stories of Jesus. If you, even people who've never really known anything about Jesus, they would know probably that one day he fed 5,000 people and, and they say he walked on water. These stories are found right next to each other in the Bible. And uh, there's a reason for that. Children are fascinated by this tale about the little boy who gave his lunch to Jesus and, you know, fed 5,000 people. Uh, uh, and, and he had a tale to tell for the rest of his life about his involvement in what Jesus had done. But John wasn't just interested in giving us a fascinating story to give us some practical lessons for life. He had that interest, I think, we'll talk about today. He wasn't just interested in telling us only if you give Jesus what you have, he'll take care of great things, although he had that to say, you know? Neither was Jesus trying to, or John rather, simply trying to give us proof of Jesus' power to convince a skeptical audience of his divinity. Jesus could turn bread into thousands, and he could walk on the top of water. I mean, yes, he wanted to show the divinity of Jesus, but if we only see in this story a practical lesson of take-home for our life or a proof of the divinity and power of Jesus, we're not really looking that deeply into the story. There is more going on than that, although, again, 
Those things are here in this text, and we'll touch on them. Now, I'm going to try to give you an overview of actually this whole sixth chapter as we look at it, and we may have to come back at it again next week. But there's a larger story that John is telling, and so I want you to see, yes, the divinity of Christ as he does these miracles, and yes, the lessons of Christ as the little boy gives his lunch, but I want you to see some larger truths that are going on here. And so there are four things we're going to talk about in the brief time that we have to get it. The first is we're going to talk about the compassion of Jesus, the vocation of Jesus, the offering of Jesus, and the challenge of Jesus, all right? This is a very important story in the Gospels. This is the only story, this is important to realize, this is the only story in the four Gospels which is repeated in every single Gospel other than the resurrection. What I mean to say is actually this. This is the only miracle recorded in all four Gospels other than the miracle of the resurrection. So every gospel writer, with their different agenda and the different stories they wanted to tell about Jesus, every gospel writer um, saw this as an important story to tell. And John, as you can tell if you look at this, I had a very difficult time printing this text for you. Um, I had to squeeze it up to get it to fit in. This is the longest chapter in the Gospel of John. John had a, and is virtually about this miracle, these two really, um, so it's very important. So let's consider, first of all, the compassion of Jesus. We see this in the first 14 verses of this story, the compassion of Jesus. And because this is the only story which is repeated in all four of the Gospels, we can learn a little bit about this story from other Gospels as well. And what we discover in the other Gospels is that this story, which is not, it's not printed in this text here, but this story occurs at the end of an exhausting period of ministry. Jesus had just sent out his 12 disciples, and they had had a, a fantastic experience of trying out the God stuff on their own, trying to cast out demons, trying to heal, doing the things of Jesus. Jesus was multiplying his ministry th through these 12. And he said to them when they came back, let's go away and rest for a while. Let's go away and relax. And he wanted a period of debriefing because after tremendous times of exhausting work, we need a time of rest. And so that's what Jesus had intended to do. So they went off beyond the Sea of Galilee, up into the hills, for, to try to get away by themselves. But what happened is that what, what had been going on through the ministry of Jesus and the ministry of his disciples is that Jesus had created quite a stir. A lot of people were interested in him. We see Jesus in this chapter at the apex of his popularity. He was really never more popular. He had no, no more followers than he had at the beginning of this story. So he brings the disciples off, to, and he sees all these people, and, and they're coming, and they want to be taught. They want to learn. And Jesus has such compassion on them, though he teaches them. And then he also says, you know, these people are in a desert place. Let's, we need to feed their needs. We need to meet their needs. You see, Jesus saw a uh, in, in this opportunity, an opportunity to serve people despite his desire to be alone with the disciples. And, and so he began to teach them. And then he said, let's feed them. And then we see as we look at this John's gospel that Jesus now begins to see a teachable moment. He sees an opportunity. These disciples have just gone out in Jesus' name. Again, we're going off the synopsis, the other three gospels. And they've been doing all this stuff, excited about God's, how God's using them. And they're going to come back and and so he wants to challenge them once more, these disciples. And so he says to them, you know, we've got to feed these people. Do you see what, what, what uh, uh, 
what is going on here. Let's just pick up the story a little bit to remind you. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, there sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii would not be enough to buy bread for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, San Andrew, Simon's Peter, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? You see, Jesus wanted to teach and serve the people, but he also wanted to teach a lesson to his disciples. You see, he's talking to them. He wants them to learn, okay? So this is a teachable moment, and John gives us these personal touches. The other stories of the feeding of 5,000 don't give words to Philip and Andrew, and they don't give us a small boy. We don't find out about that except here in John's Gospel. John has a wonderful way of giving us these personal touches, which is one of the reasons why we can very confidently believe that John's Gospel was written by an eyewitness of the events, not by some later disciple, as some have said, but actually by John himself, the, uh, the apostle, okay? Um, and so we see these personal touches. Uh, he says to Philip, what are we, where are we going to get some bread? Why Philip? Well, probably because Philip came from that general area. He was from the Bethsaida, which wasn't very far away. And it's basically like saying, uh, do you know where there's a McDonald's around here? We need to get, you know, you know the area. That's why I asked Philip. And Philip says, I, I, I don't know. I don't have near enough money. 200 denarii, that basically, you know, that's eight months wages. All right? Eight months wages would not be enough to buy food for these people. He saw that problem and he thought it was up to him to solve it like most of us do. We see a problem, we think, oh, where am I going to get all that I need? He didn't realize that the solution was right next to him because all he saw was the scarcity of his resources and the enormity of the problem. And isn't that a lesson for us? We often have a problem in front of us and we look at our own resources, whether financial or moral or physical, <laughs> you know, what am I going to do? And we don't realize the enormity of the one to whom we are attached, Jesus. What is Jesus trying to teach them? He's basically saying to Philip and Andrew and all the rest of the 12, you know when he did those miracles? Don't get too puffed up about that. <laughs> it wasn't you. It was God working through you. And for the future, remember, God can work through you as well. And so Andrew says, hey, well, there's a little boy here, and this seems to me I, I don't know, we don't, we're not told exactly, so this is a little bit of imagination in my part, but I tend to think the boy volunteered his lunch. I mean, he, sometimes there are people say, nobody brought any food. I just, I mean, some women never go anywhere without packing lunch, right? Right? I mean, th there were people there who had food. The unique thing about this story was that one boy said, I've got some stuff. So, he, you know, the, the disciples are still, and he says, he, it's like, you know, the little boy says, uh, hey, I got, I got my lunch. <laughs> he doesn't know this is an impossible situation, right? He just knows that, you know, he's got something and he can share, you see? I think it, so I think he volunteered what he had. So we see the compassion of Jesus in that he teaches them even though he's tired. And he feeds them even though there are no real resources there. Now, some have thought this is such an astounding miracle. It must never really have happened. But to me, the fact that it is in all four Gospels, 
and that it was such a public display of power. I mean, 5,000 men, right? How many people altogether? 10,000, 15,000? That is a huge group. How are you going to get away with telling a lie when 5,000 or 10,000 people were witnesses? How are you going to do that? The fact that this story is in there, as preposterous as it might seem to us, I think is proof that it must have been true or it couldn't have survived. You see? It's one thing to say, I saw a miracle back in the corner. You should see it, you know? No one else saw it but me. An angel came and gave me some stuff, you know, and I wrote it down. No, this is in front of a lot of people. So I accept this story as being truthful. Um, um, I think it only makes sense that that's how it would be recorded. So what do we see here? We see here that Jesus blesses whatever is willingly offered to him. He offered, the boy offered his lunch, and Jesus multiplied it. And I'm sure there are times when you could say, Jesus did so much more with what I had than what I expected. So the compassion of Jesus, what do we get there? Jesus feeds God's famished people. Jesus feeds God's famished people. Oh, that's beautiful. The secondly, let's see the vocation of Jesus. That's the, the quick look at this story. It's a beautiful look, but let's look a little deeper. The vocation of Jesus. There's some clues that are in this text which are really important for us to see that John wants us to see. John writes very simply, but he does not waste a brush stroke. He does not waste uh, a word. He's telling us things that are important for us to know. And there's some things that are in here that if we take sort of a general look at this story and then we look more carefully at it, we will see that more is going on here than what we just saw. If you take a look at this story, the one following, and then in the rest of this whole text is a commentary, a long dialogue about this event, if you read ahead. We see that here we have Jesus providing bread virtually out of nowhere to people who were by themselves alone in a wilderness. Bread from nowhere in a wilderness. We see also Jesus conquering water, walking on water, when the people, the disciples, were afraid for their own lives, these fishermen on this boat. Where in the Bible do we have a similar kind of story? Beautiful art invites people to draw into this story. If we think back in this story, we remember that there was a time long before when God had called the people of Israel out of Egypt and given to them a deliverer and brought them safely across water and then provide for them manna, bread, in the wilderness. So we begin to wonder, is John trying to help us see something a little deeper in this story? Well, let's look at the details now and see if anything of this is there. First of all, we see... In the preceding verses, verse, uh, chapters 5 and 45, and this is why you ought to bring your own Bible. I'm afraid to give you texts each day because it's going to make you lazy. But, <laughs> but I'm sort of acquiescing a little bit because, uh, you know, I want you to be able to see this stuff. And we come here to teach the Scripture, so I give to you as much as I can. In any case, we see in chapter 5 and verse 45, 
Do you not think that I will accuse you to the Father? There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. Moses, okay. Chapter 6 and verse 3. Jesus went up on the mountain. Hmm, a mountain figures in that earlier story. But now we get a little clearer. Verse 4. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Why would John include this detail? Hmm. He's trying to bring his readers to the reminder of the Passover. Do you remember when the Passover happened? It happened in Egypt, right? Just before they left, when God had brought all these plagues, and ultimately they killed a lamb, put the blood on the doorposts and the lentil, and they were saved, and then ultimately they were delivered. The Passover was at hand. John is the one who mentions the Passover and does it three times in this gospel. Once when Jesus comes and cleans the temple in the second chapter of John. Next here in John chapter 6, Jesus is not at, in Jerusalem when it happens, but uh, he mentions that as being the time. And the third is when Jesus is crucified. In fact, if it, it is John's gospel that lets us know that Jesus had probably a three-year ministry. Without John's gospel, we might think it was only a year, a year and a half. Because the other Gospels only mention the Passover one time. It's John that gives us this clue. So John is not doing this accidentally. He's speaking about the Passover, all right? Well, we're getting a little clearer picture as we look through this. Um, what if we go on? Verse 14, after the miracle, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come to the world. This is the prophet. What does that mean? Well, that is a reference to back to Deuteronomy chapter 18, when Moses is talking to the people and uh, is speaking about the future. And he says in Deuteronomy 18, 15, the Lord your God will raise for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. And remember when John the Baptist was preaching, is he the prophet? You see, there was this expectation that when God was going to bring deliverance, he would send a prophet. So maybe Jesus is that prophet. He's acting like it, isn't he? He just provided us bread out of nowhere. And that's where the picture gets even more clear and more fundamental. Going on in this section, and I printed more of it than what Richard read for you. Uh, the, in, John chapter, in John chapter 6, I need a bigger place to put my stuff. Uh, we see uh, that they begin to ask him, uh, uh, they begin to ask him questions. Jesus says in verse 26, um, you, you are not seeking me because you saw the signs, but because you had your fill of the, the loaves. Um, in verse 30, they say, what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. So this picture is much more clear. John is trying, man, and Jesus begins to talk about manna and bread, which is part of the same story. So we have a compelling picture as we've looked more carefully. This isn't just how a little boy fed a lot of people, although that's there. It's also relating to this deeply long-held hope that someday God would provide a deliverer. And so what is the vocation of Jesus that John wants his followers, these readers to see? He wants them to see that Jesus is God's promised deliverer. That Jesus is the one who is God's 
promised uh, uh, promised delivery uh, deliver and so we see uh, we see Jesus provide leading people as Moses led people okay and so what we want to see about this is that um, as Moses delivers God's people from Egypt so Jesus delivers us Jesus is the culmination of all those Old Testament prophecies, speaking about a deliverer who would come, but we realize he wasn't just the prophet that they expected. He was, in fact, God in the flesh. Because when they ask him about the bread, they're thinking about, give us some more manna. Can you give us another meal like this? And Jesus says, wait a minute. I am the bread of life. And later he says, unless you eat this bread... You will have no part of me. What these people had a hard time realizing is that Jesus wasn't just there to meet their needs and to give them some things and, you know, sort of fix their lives. But he was the promised deliverer who would give his life as a sacrifice for the sins of the world. Now, just as I expected and feared, this is a 71-verse chapter. And just more stuff in here than I can really talk about today. And so we'll pick this up next week. But I want to make sure I tie this closely together. One of the things, two lessons we've seen out of this. First of all, as God, as God, excuse me, as Moses delivered God's people from Egypt, so Jesus is God's deliverer for us. Jesus is the one who gives his life as a sacrifice for our sin. He is the one whose, uh, whose body and whose blood are broken and spilled for us. He is the one who is, in effect, that sacrificial lamb. Remember John mentioned the Passover. And if you know your story about the Bible, you know that what they had to do was sacrifice a perfectly spotless lamb and its blood would be put on the doorposts and the lentils. And they would eat that meat. And this would be their way of identifying their trust in God and the realization that the only way sin can be atoned for is through death. This was a story they enacted every year on Passover. It was a holy day in the life of Israel and is still today. But if we fast forward to Jesus' day, we find that near the end of Jesus' ministry, on a certain Passover time, he shows up with his disciples. He has a meal with those disciples, and he says, this bread is my body broken for you. This cup is my blood given for you. Take and eat this. And when did Jesus die? He died on Passover weekend. So, this story is hinting toward that, moving us toward that story when Jesus gives his life. I encourage you, trust in Jesus. Take him into your life. Receive what he offers. And then, like the little boy in this story, just offer Jesus whatever you have. As the old song says, little is much when God is in it. Whatever you have, just offer it to him. Don't see your problems by the scarcity of your resources, 
but rather by the enormity of the resources of God. For Jesus lives within you if you've trusted in him. Let's have prayer as we close. In Je- Lord Jesus, thank you for this beautiful story of provision. We can appreciate it simply from the compassion that you showed and the willingness of the little boy to offer himself. We offer ourselves to you. But we also see a deeper story going on, one which led to a very long and involved and, in fact, heated conversation between Jesus and those who were wanting to follow him. Because what he was trying to be for them was not just an addendum to their lives, but rather to become the savior of their lives. Many of them walked away and decided not to follow him anymore after this miracle, as sad as it is. And there are many of us who are attracted to Jesus, but when it comes right down to it, we're not willing to really lay down our lives before him. We pray that you would open our hearts to you and that we would open our lives to you. Thank you that you have given your life for us, that you are the promised deliverer for the world. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.